that it enlightens for the world what hate and discrimination can do and be aware of it and do something if you see something wrong. Welcome to our podcast, Teaching and Leading with Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy. I am Dr. Amy Viaclia, Director of Educator Preparation. And I am Dr. Joy Patterson, Chief Diversity Officer. Our podcast addresses issues through the lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion, along with solutions for us to grow as educators. So join us on our journey to become better teachers and leaders. So let's get into it. Hi, I'm Dr. Amy, and this episode of Teaching and Leading with Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy honors the International Holocaust Remembrance Day designated for January 27th each year. I want to thank Dr. Joy for her work to develop diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging at Governor State University. She hosts regular lunch and learns with speakers and rich conversations, and this time, attendees were privileged to hear from Judith Altman, a 99-year-old Holocaust survivor. You will hear Stephen Altman introduce his mother and how Judith Altman has made it her life's work to share what hate can do. She is a true teacher and leader. Good afternoon, everyone. Today is very special. I really anticipated today's session, even got nervous about today's session. I don't know why I'm nervous. I'm not the speaker. (laughs) But not nervous today because we really work hard on making today possible. Today, as you know, we're going to talk about the Holocaust. And as we approach the International Holocaust Remembrance Day, which is, when is it, on Friday? I think it's the official Remembrance Day. We take a moment to reflect on one of the darkest chapters in our history. Uh, This day serves as a solemn reminder of the millions of lives lost, the suffering endured, and the unwavering importance of preserving the memory of the Holocaust. So that is why we are here today. We are showing our commitment, and we're just really fostering an environment that values people and education, empathy, and respect for everyone. Thank you very, very much. Really appreciate it. Uh, My mom, Judith Altman, is a Holocaust survivor. She was born in Jasina, Czechoslovakia in 1924. She spent the last 30 years speaking at schools and teaching our young people what hate and discrimination can do. Without further ado, I turn you over to my mom, Judith Altman. Thank you. My name is Judith Altman, and I am a Holocaust survivor. Thank you for the invitation to speak to you today. Without it, there would be no way for us to tell our young people what hate and discrimination can do. My advice to you. Learn all you can. The knowledge of languages I spoke saved my life. Because of that, I was picked to be saved. So study all you can. 
I was born in Yasina, a small town of about 15,000 inhabitants in Czechoslovakia. I was 14 years old when the Nazis invaded in 1939. Hitler had already invaded Austria, and after the Sudetenland was annexed, all of Czechoslovakia fell. He did not stop. On March 15, 1939, he just walked walked into Czechoslovakia with the entire army, opened the windows from the Prague castle and said, we are here to protect you. He said he meant from the Russians. All of us were ready to fight. My brothers were already dressed in their Czech uniform. They all went through the army, but nothing happened. Czechoslovakia gave up and we we were so disappointed. Why didn't we fight? I was the youngest of six children in my family. All Jewish people were required to wear a yellow star of David. This included the 5,000 Jewish families in my hometown. You had to sew it on on the left arm and on the back. We were marked, we were actually marked. Every Jewish man from the age of 18 to 45 was taken to slave labor camp. Most of them never returned. Hitler's aim was to kill all the Jews. He said he is going to kill all the Slavs. That meant anybody of Slavic descent, like Poles, Czechs, or Yugoslavs. He wanted a reine Rasse, a pure race. All Germans, when he was finished with the war. Six million Jews were killed. Ten million people altogether. Jewish men were taken from the town first to dig mass graves. The following day, German officers and soldiers forced all the Jewish people out of the town to the gravesite. They were forced to get undressed so the army could repurpose their clothing and then killed. The brutality, they shot the children first, the fathers then, and at the end the mothers. The mothers had to watch all their their husbands and children be shot into the mass grave. In 1943, the Germans determined This process was too costly and too slow and decided to build gas chambers and crematoriums that would kill thousands per day. This was all planned ahead of time. In Yasina, my father owned a general store and my family also had a farm where I was able to live with my parents until 1944. Two of my brothers had been taken 
to slave labor camps in Poland, and my two sisters, who were already married, lived near the family's farm. One was in Yasina, and another, uh, another one, my sister Charlotte, lived about a half hour away from Poland with her husband and their three-year-old daughter and seven-year-old son. Although the German army had taken away our store and most of the animals on our farm, we were left with one cow which provided some milk, butter, and cheese. And we hired a local man who was not Jewish to take food to my sister Charlotte and her family. One day, he comes back with a satchel, with the food, and he said to my parents, I regret very much that I could not deliver the food to Charlotte as I witnessed her execution. After that, we had to stop attending school. You are listening to Teaching and Leading with Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy with special guest presentation by Judith Altman, a Holocaust survivor. German officers took over our house, and me and my mother moved into the summer kitchen, while my father, who had been beaten by the German soldiers, hid in the attic. My oldest brother, who had been living in Belgium, was able to escape to the United States in 1939. He was the only lucky one. Every day, there were different rumors. We were petrified and frightened at all times. It was a horrible thing, what a hate and discrimination can do. Every, every one, early one morning, in April 1944, two German officers and two Hungarian gendarmes knocked on our window. We were told we had a half hour to prepare and should pack any and all valuables. My father, who was a religious man, took his prayer book, and I took my manicure set a gift of my most recent birthday, I had to persuade my mother to go with us as she was threatening suicide. It was Easter Sunday, so this time of the year is very painful. We marched six kilometers to town. The non-Jewish people looked at us and nobody said a thing. Nobody asked even, where are you taking these people? These were our friends. They went to school with me. My family was directed to the Jewish cemetery, where we remained for one week before being put on a train to Hungary. We lived in a ghetto with thousands of Jewish people from all over the region. Conditions were very cramped with multiple families in a house. Six weeks later, 
we will put on another train, this time, rather than passenger cars, we were packed into cattle cars, 75 to 80 people in each, with no food and one tiny window for air. The train did not move until the following morning. People were already dying and children were screaming due to hunger and thirst. The SS men threatened to shoot everyone if they could not make the screaming stop. We had to tie the people's mouth and their hands in order that they would not scream. When the train stopped, men, women, and children were instructed to line up, and the soldiers killed anyone who was sick or could no longer walk with their bayonets. Those who were able to march for about an hour to a place, they would later learn was Auschwitz the largest of the Nazi concentration camps. I remember seeing a German officer. He was tall with shiny boots and carried a rubber stick in his hand. In front of us was Dr. Joseph Mengele. He was called the angel of death. He, he was to determine who shall live and who shall die. He looked at me and pointed to the left and directed my parents to the right. We were marching to the left and they were marching to their death. I was put into a line with other healthy young people. Mengele had selected for work. We all had beautiful hair. They cut our hair completely bald, and we were told to go to step a step further, and we stood in front of a barrel. We were told to get undressed completely naked. We were given a little tiny piece of soap, and in front of us it says water. In our case, we went into a shower, but in our parents' case, they went into the gas chamber and immediately to the crematorium. So the entire camp was surrounded by barbed wire that was elect electrified, and if anyone tried to escape, they were shot immediately by guards armed with machine guns in the towers. I was given a, a plain gray dress and a pair of wooden shoes and stood inside for many hours. I walked one hour from Auschwitz to Birkenau where 1,400 women were placed in huge low barracks. They slept in bunks that looked like bookshelves, and the supervisor, who was also Jewish, told us not to make a sound. Suddenly, there is the most horrific smell of burning. It's choking. 
I asked another Czech prisoner who had been there for a few years, what is that horrible smell? She said, oh, these are your parents burning. The prisoners were woken up at 5 a.m. and made to stand for roll call each day. You stand there and Dr. Joseph Mengele comes every other day and looks at the people that he already went through. If you are pale, he'll take you out. If, if he sees two girls looking alike, like sisters, he will take one out or a, or a mother and daughter that he might have picked. He'll take one out. He did not want to have any relatives together. He stood online for, we stood online hours. We had been given no food and were afraid that we would die of hunger. After the second day, we were given a little dish so we could get a little soup in the evening. We received two ounces of water for the day. It was a horrible place. Our greatest fear was that would not make that we would not make it back to the barracks from roll call. You are listening to special guest Judith Altman tell her story of being a Holocaust survivor. I survived for six weeks in Auschwitz before being taken by train to the Gelsenkirchen work camp in Germany. I was one of about 2,000 young Czech women who were taken there to work in shifts, half of them during the day and the other half at night. We were beaten by the SS men and SS women, but we knew we were out of Auschwitz. It wasn't easy. It was cold. We had to walk barefoot. With, we worked there many, many hours a day. I was moved next to Essen, another work camp, where I worked inside. A piece of iron fell on my left wrist and it broke. If I could not work, I would be taken away never to be seen again. There was an SS woman, Erika. She liked me because I spoke a fluent German. Actually, I spoke six languages and was deemed useful for my ability to translate. I was doomed because my arm was broken and they were going to take me away to send me back to Auschwitz or whatever was the nearest extermination camp. Erika said, do not take this girl. I need her because she does the translation for me. She saved my life. From Essen, I was taken to another camp, which was even worse if I would get any food from one day to the next. And then I was told to go on a death march that would end at the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. 
at this point, we are so emaciated. We are barely breathing. You see a mother and a daughter, and one is dying or she is already dead. The other one that is still alive does not want to leave the sibling or the daughter. We have to pull them away in hopes that they will survive. Then we start marching and we walk without any food. Occasionally, they will throw a little, a little bit for us, but most of the time, nothing. It was the most horrible thing that I could tell you. When I finally got to Bergen-Belsen, it was the worst camp that you can imagine. It was unbelievable. Dead bodies wherever you turn. My niece was with me and was so hungry. She asked me to help. I see the SS man behind the wire walking with a gun and eating a sandwich. I said to myself, what can I lose? He might shoot me. I can't take it any longer myself. And I asked him, can you spare a bite? He called me different names. And as he walked by, he dropped a little piece of his sandwich. It's under the wire and he walks away. I used a stick to pull the sandwich under the wire and, and brought it back to my knees, dividing it in three, three portions between me, my niece, and another girl. End of the war. Hitler had ordered each of the camps to stock a barrack full of sliced bread that had been poisoned. He'd already seen that he was losing the war. He said, if you see either the Allies or the Americans or the Russians coming and they're near the camp, give everyone a slice of poisoned bread so that they should find bodies, not people. Fortunately, those orders were not carried out at any of the camps. I was sick with typhus and near death when my camp was liberated in 1945 by the British Army. One of the soldiers spoke to me in English. I said, I must be dreaming. He didn't think I was young. I must have looked 100 years old to him. He said, you are free. You are free. What a wonderful, wonderful thing to hear. You are free. Many more people died in the first few days after liberation because the soldiers gave them all the food they had and the people ate so much, their stomach couldn't tolerate that. Churches and schools were converted into hospitals to give help to the thousands who survived. At this point, I had a choice to make. 
Now we are free. But what do we do? We know we have no more parents. Do we have any siblings left? What do we do? My niece is still alive as well. I saw her in one of the places, in a bed with a white sheet. She said, as soon as I'm able to stand on my feet, I am going to go back home, hoping that I will find my brother. I said, I am not going back. I have nobody there. Instead, I chose to go to Sweden, which I knew was a free country and was not involved in the war. I spent six weeks in a quarantine and one year in a hospital regaining my health. After that, I went back to school and waited to go to the United States where I had a brother, a grandmother, uncles and aunts, all waiting. I have dedicated my life to educating children about the Holocaust and helping wherever I can. Thank you again for your invitation to speak to you today. Without it, there would be no way for us to tell our young people what hate and discrimination can do. My advice to you, learn all you can. The knowledge of languages I spoke saved my life. Because of that, I was picked to be saved. So study all you can. My name is Judith Altman. I am a Holocaust survivor. And thank you for listening. Okay, Judith, thank you. You're very welcome. We have a bit of time for question and answers. But before I forget, I also want to thank the Holocaust Human Rights and Educational Center. They have the Bureau Speakers. And this is where I found this beautiful woman here today. And so I want to give a big shout out to them for having this resource. And we want to thank you again for sharing your testimony, sharing such a horrific story. And we are so happy that you have triumphed through all of this. So thank you for sharing your story. I'm going to open it up for any questions. In addition to sharing this information and your experiences, what have you done and what are you doing to heal, to heal your heart? What, what I do is by talking to young people such as you in, in schools for many, many years, and that it enlightens for the world what hate and discrimination can do and be aware of it and do something. If you see something wrong, I used to go to schools and speak to them personally. And later I spoke to them online in order to understand because when time is, when life is nice, you don't know these things, what hate can do. So it is up to you young people to do as much as you can and tell them what hate did and what they can do. Thank you. Have you been back, Judith? 
Yes, yes, I, I did go once there. And, but what do you see? You don't see any graves, anything. You just know when he, when they came, as we came in with the train, directly into the gas chamber and into the crematorium. So that was a very painful stop. Were you able to reconcile with any of your family members once you were free? We, no, we lost 24 members of my family, and you can't. Of course, when I came to the United States, I had some cousins and some relatives, and they are so precious because you have somebody of the family. But every friend, you are my friends. You listen to that, and you hear what Hate can do, and wherever you see anything that isn't right, you will stop. If you'll see any young boy, not not willingly, but just out of thing, and you, you'll remind them, be nice. Did she continue to use her ability to speak those languages in, in her family life and her career? How did that help her once she came to the United States? Yes, indeed. But whatever you do, if it's languages, stick to it and work at it. It is a wonderful, wonderful feeling. Indeed, it helped me a great deal because I was able, if somebody didn't understand what what hate Hitler did, I explained it to him in there, in Hungarian, in Russian, in Czech, in, in German, in, uh, speak many languages. So that is helpful. But in your case, you might be a good mechanic. You might be a terrific dressmaker. You might be a, per, a person with languages. Do whatever you can and teach other people. Have something in your back pocket? <laughs> <laughs> yes. With the rising anti-Semitism in many of the college campuses, do you have any words of wisdom for resilience for those students? Indeed, I have been invited to many universities, and I just tell them that being, first of all, love your mother and father, grandma and grandpa. Of course, that's first. And then do whatever you can do good, do good. You see a woman, an old woman carrying two bundles, help her for a little bit, and you'll have a terrific day, and you helped her. Whatever help you can do, and you will in smile as you beautiful are. Do you see anything today with the explosion of anti-Semitism worldwide? Do you see anything similar to what took place in Germany in the 1930s? Is it like a pre-hour Indeed, it does. And it is very scary. I tell you honestly, extremely so. But more or less, now we are still... Stand up and don't be afraid to tell him. He might be I, I'm not informed. He might just copy somebody. Tell him. There were, there, at one time, I met two young people, and they put me, it was also, I spoke to many, about 400 people, and they called me, say, Mrs. Altman, could you come in a corner and answer me? And she, she said, why do they do that? So I said, because they're not thinking, they just copy. His friend says, don't like Jewish 
Jewish people or black people or whatever, but you tell them, don't listen to him. Don't listen to what other people, you have a mind of your own and make your own judgment. Stephen, I have Thank a you. question for you. Stephen, this is for you. When we face tragedy and injustice, it not only affects that individual, we know that it has many arms and tentacles and it affects their entire family. Can you talk about the impact that it's had on you as a child of someone who's a Holocaust survivor? Sure. I'm, I'm well aware because my mom shared all the stories with me throughout my whole life, even when I was young. And uh, a, a son and a mother are very close. So when you hear your mother telling those stories and what happened to her back then, that's it, it, it's really hard to hear. It's very, very painful thinking that your mother is being hurt in that fashion. I used to, I used to daydream when I was growing up that I would somehow be able to go back in time and kill Hitler. I mean, that was, you know, what I thought. I was, it was always about wanting to help her, but it didn't, it didn't limit me. It didn't, uh, it didn't hurt me in, in my life. It gave me strength. It gave me purpose. Um, I felt like I had a, a great uh, childhood and, uh, I couldn't have asked for more. My mom was very hardworking when she, uh, you know, after the camps. And I got that from her. So it, it worked out well for me in my life. The, she taught me something very strong, which is very hard, because I, I don't feel good when somebody does something to us. Uh, I think about revenge. You know, I, I want to get those people back for what they did, you know. But what she taught me was, you know, hate only hurts the person who hates. The other people don't know you hate them. And uh, it just hurts yourself. It took a long time, but I, I, finally, I finally figured that out. Yeah, you are correct. Hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. so you are correct. Um, in addition to the Erica and the soldier with the sandwich, were there other instances of kindness now you heard about Erica. She was an SS woman, and she had the same training: what to do, keep him, keep him very hard of work. Don't, don't give him any time. If they are barefoot, let them walk barefoot. Don't let them pick up a shoe maybe along the street. Don't do. But she did not do it. She helped wherever she can. And when I was liberated. I, I look for Erica. Look, go look in all of Germany for the name of Erica without knowing the last name. There are thousands, of course, but I looked for years. I wrote in the newspaper, Erica, who was in this and this camp, I would like to thank you and do something for you. But which German woman would admit that she was an SS woman? Any little bit of help was was the greatest thing you can imagine. Did you ever encounter any of your persecutors after you were free? Very good question indeed, but it was unbelievable how they disappeared. They disappeared of the day of when we were uh, liberated by the British. Where could they, could they have disappeared so fast? 
because we we were not in the physical position position we were barely we could not even stand up because we were so emaciated from hunger and and sickness we it took one whole year to cure me not only me most of the girls after we were liberated one whole year in a hospital in sweden but it was wonderful at that time i learned another language and they were very very wonderful the swedish people as well like the americans as well i just her resilience i'm just wondering you know they say nature versus nurture but she lost her family so soon i'm just wondering can she think of something in her life where she she knows that her resilience originates from mm-hmm. My father was the kind of man that he would as 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 they walked us down to to the town him to the to the cemetery and and be killed and all that he even then had compassion and he was he was they are told to do it it's not the individual their enemies as well they you mean they they superiors what did help me a great deal and that we were standing in line and the men were next to us in a row of five and the women in a row of five and then dr joseph mengele who was called the the angel of death he was a tall man extremely handsome with a most beautiful clothing and and i when i passed my father's row he put his hand on my head and he said judy you will live and as many times as i was close to death i remembered no papa said i will live and i made and you live such a time as this thank you so much thank you very much and i wish you all a wonderful wonderful youth and wonderful life and peace and all the best in the world thank you for listening to teaching and leading with dr amy and dr joy visit our website at govst.edu/teachingandleadingpodcast to see the show notes from this episode We appreciate Governor State University's work behind the scenes to make publishing possible. Stay tuned for more episodes with Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy.